I don't know you, my name is Chloe, and I am on staff here at Christian Ministries Church. Uh, Tonight we are going to be learning about Esther and how Esther walked in faith, how she lived her life by faith. And if you don't know, Esther is an entire book in the Bible, and we are basically going to track through almost the whole thing, but we are going to focus specifically on the parts that Esther plays a big role in. So, because our Heroes, Heroes of Faith series comes from Hebrews 11, uh, there is a passage in Hebrews 11 that even though Esther's name isn't explicitly mentioned in Hebrews 11, we could apply this passage to her life. Hebrews 11, verse 33 says, By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. So the writer of Hebrews lists all these people, and then he says, and I don't have room to list all of these other stories that could be mentioned in the great hall of faith. So again, although Esther's name is not mentioned in Hebrews 11, we're going to walk through her story tonight and see how, by faith, she escaped death, and how she ruled with justice, which are some of the characteristics that we just saw laid out in Hebrews 11. So, who is Esther? Esther, at the beginning of her story, is a Jewish orphan living in exile who is being raised by her much older cousin, Mordecai. So, who is Mordecai? Well, Mordecai is a Jewish man who adopted Esther after her parents died. So the notable fact here is that uh, this is a Jewish God of Israel believing family. That's the notable fact that we want to take away from who Esther and Mordecai are. So the book of Esther, it begins telling us the story of Esther by starting with a Persian king named King Xerxes. This king has a banquet, and he calls his wife, Queen Vashti, to come into the public eye so that everyone can see her beauty, but she refuses to do so. So we have some complicated names here. We have a little bit of an ancient story happening. Uh, This makes the king angry when his wife refuses to come be seen. She's a very beautiful woman, and so the king wants to show her off in his pride, and she refuses to come out. This makes the king angry, so he asks his council of men what the law says that he must do to her because he's the king. They recommend that she no longer be allowed to be in the presence of the king and that her royal position be given to someone else. And so the king does to Queen Vashti as the law requires. She's dethroned and she's banished. (laughs) So this means there's no longer a queen. And because there's no longer a queen, they have to begin the search for one. So this is where Esther comes into the story. So there's the backstory. Now we're bringing in Esther. Esther is brought into the king's harem, which is a separate part of the palace that's specifically laid out for different things. Uh, And she comes into the king's harem alongside many other young women. And it's noted that Esther is treated very kindly while she's in this place. A special menu is ordered for her so she can be provided with beauty treatments. And seven maids are chosen from the king's palace to be assigned to Esther. So she's receiving kind of a special treatment here. She's then moved along with her maids, the best place in the harem. So she's living the life. She just went from being a Jewish orphan in exile, and now she's in the king's palace being treated with beauty. It's a great thing. So it's interesting, though, because even though she's described in Scripture as being beautiful, 
Esther goes through an entire year of what they call beautification treatments. Uh, she goes through six months with oil of myrrh and then six months with special perfumes and ointments. All of this was in preparation for her to be taken to the king. In the midst of all of this happening, Esther has not shared her nationality or family background with anyone because Mordecai, her older cousin, has told her not to. So once Esther meets the king, so again, she spends all this time in preparation to go meet the king, and so now we're skipping to the part where she does meet the king. So once she has met the king, she's taken to a different part of the palace called the second harem, where other women who have already met the king, where they all stay, they stay together. These are known to be secondary wives who may not be selected as the next queen. So they've met the queen, but they're all waiting to hear who the queen is going to be. It's noted in chapter 2, verse 14, that Esther would never go to the king again unless he requested her by name. This is an important detail for us to remember as her story unfolds. So Esther could only approach the king again if her name was specifically mentioned by the mouth, from the mouth of the king. In the seventh year of King Xerxes' reign, and if you want to keep track with me here, I know we're going through a lot, I'm in the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is taken to him again, taken to King Xerxes again. In chapter two, chapter 2, verse 17, scripture tells us, that the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. So here we have this beautiful moment where a, a Jewish orphan girl living in exile becomes the queen. So the king throws a big banquet in Esther's honor to celebrate the occasion, and he declares the day a public holiday and gives generous gifts to everyone. Yet, Esther continues to keep her family background and her nationality a secret. Now, the marriage of the king, the Persian king, to Esther, a Jewish woman, was against per Persian law, which stated that one in the royal line, so the king is in the royal line, that he must marry a wife belonging to the seven great Persian families. Well, we know that Esther was not Persian. She was a Jew in exile. Now, there are a few things that happen between this part of the book and the next part of the book where we're going to pick up, but remember, we're focusing on Esther's faith in the midst of her story, not the entire book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther is like a soap opera, so there's no way we could talk about all of it in the amount of time that we have. You should read it for yourself. It really is quite entertaining. Uh, but we're going to pick up in chapter 3. So sometime later, King Xerxes promotes a guy named Haman, uh, so much so that he becomes the most powerful official in the entire empire. All of the king's officials would bow down to Haman to show him respect whenever he passed uh, by because that's what the king had commanded them to do. But Mordecai, uh, uh, Esther's older cousin, again, who raised her, refused to bow down to Haman or show him respect. Well, Haman becomes enraged because Mordecai won't bow down to him. So once Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he decides that he'll destroy all of the Jews throughout the empire because that's the logical thing to do. Now remember, Esther has again shared nothing about her family background, so the king does not know that she's related to Mordecai, who is now known as a Jew. Well, Haman goes to meet with the king and tells him about this peculiar group of people, the Jews, who keep themselves separate from everyone else, 
and who have different laws than other people, which is true. These are God's people. But Haman adds, so it is not in the king's interest to let them live. This is what Haman is telling the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live, like he's speaking for the king. This is where he asked the king to issue a decree that all of the Jewish people from India to Ethiopia, covering 127 different provinces, be destroyed. And the king agrees. He's like, okay, write the decree and I'll sign it. So on April 17th, scripture gives us the exact day, which I think is really interesting. The decree is written and the message that it contains is that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. And the property of the Jews would be given to whoever killed them. All of this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. So it would happen about 11 months after the decree was sent out to the 127 provinces. So the Jews have about 11 months until they know that this uh, doom, their fate, is going to happen. So Haman is out to kill the Jewish race. Mordecai mourns and he grieves. And then he reaches out to his adopted daughter, Esther, who is now the queen, and he asks for her help. He says, go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for your people. Esther replies in chapter 4, verse 11, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called me to come to him for 30 days. So Mordecai says, please, Esther, go beg the king to give our Jewish people mercy. And she says, well, I have not been called to go to the king. And you know that it is by law that if anyone approaches the king without being asked to do so, they will die unless he holds out his gold scepter. And keep in mind that she was not supposed to go to the king unless he requested her by name as uh, even queen. So Mordecai responds to her reply about potentially dying uh, to Esther in chapter 4, verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arrive from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And there's the famous verse that we read. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Mordecai, quite convincing. So when Esther sends her reply to Mordecai, she asks him to gather the Jews and fast for her as she and her maids are going to do the same. And then, although it is against the law, she will go in to see the king. So she decides that she's going to go in to see the king and risk her life. In her famous line found in chapter 4, verse 16, she says, if I must die, I must die. But in this moment, she decides that it's worth it uh, to save her people. Mordecai has the people fast, and on the third day of the fast, Esther puts on her royal robes and she enters the inner court of the palace. She sees the king sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance, and when he sees Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomes her and he holds out the gold scepter to her, which means she's not doomed to die anymore. So Esther then approaches the throne and touches the end of the scepter. Then the king asks her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
I will give it to you, even if it is half of the kingdom. Esther has found favor with the king. She invites the king and Haman, the guy who wants all the Jews killed, to two banquets over the courses of chapters 5 and 6. We're going to skip through that just a little bit. Uh, At the second banquet, which is recorded in chapter 7, the king again says to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther, what is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half of the kingdom. And Queen Esther replies, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. At the end of this banquet, Haman is impaled on a pole that he had set up for Mordecai to be impaled on. So a little bit of a reverse situation happening here. Uh, Now Haman is no longer in the picture. Uh, So again, we can't talk about all the details tonight, but it is a wild story. You've got to read it. Uh, The issue is, even after the second banquet, and again, Haman is no longer in the picture. He is now uh, dead. The problem is not resolved because the decree is still out that all of the Jews should be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on April 17th of the next year. So Esther goes again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil decree that Haman came up with against the Jews. Again, the king holds out the gold scepter to Esther. So she rises from the ground and she stands before him. She says, if it please the king, and if I have found favor with him, and if he thinks it is right, and if I am pleasing to him, Let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, who ordered that Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? The king then gives her and Mordecai permission to send a message to the Jews in the king's name, but lets them know that the previous decree cannot be revoked. So the previous decree that was sent out, it can no longer be taken back, because the king has signed it. But another decree can be sent out that would reverse the previous evil decree. So the decree that Esther and Mordecai come up with gives the Jews in every city authority to unite, to come together in order to defend their lives. They would be allowed to kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives. When the Jews receive the decree, they are filled with joy and gladness and are honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and celebrated. Chapter 8, verse 17 records that many of the people of the land became Jews themselves, for they feared what the Jews might do to them. But this is all because of the faith of one woman. Now that we're all familiar with the story of Esther, I have three points for you tonight. Bear with me. We're through the story. Number one, Esther prepared to approach the king. Esther prepared to approach the king. The first time she went to the king, she spent an entire year getting ready. Scripture tells us that she was beautiful, yet she still spent a year receiving beautification treatments. As believers in this room, The Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us. 
We know this biblically from about to scripture blast you. John 14, 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Romans 8, 15 and 16 and more. There's a, there's a lot in there. But even though the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us and empowers us to live for Christ and to do his will, we still must choose to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. As believers in this room, we know that we are positionally sanctified. In other words, the sacrifice of Jesus has made us holy before God so we can boldly approach the throne. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Hebrews 10.10 says, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Acts 13 verse 39 says, Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. So we are positionally, because of Jesus' sacrifice, made right in God's sight. We are positionally sanctified but we are also being sanctified as we live our lives in the day-to-day. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by that one offering, Jesus, his offering, his sacrifice, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Hebrews 12, 14, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. John 17, verses 17 through 19, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father, and he prays, make them holy by your truth. Make my people holy by your truth, Lord. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Little by little, every day, we are becoming more like Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives us a list of ways in which we can supplement our faith. We know that we have faith because we have been saved by God's grace through our faith, but we can still grow in faith. This is how we prepare to approach the king like Esther did the first time. She was beautiful, but she spent time receiving those beauty treatments. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside of us, yet we spend time learning how to yield to the Holy Spirit as we grow in maturity. We are positionally sanctified, made right before God because of Jesus' sacrifice. But at the same time, we are being made holy as we learn to further imitate Christ more and more with each day. We have faith, but we're still growing in faith. It's what this whole year is about. We're learning how to live by faith. There's never a moment that goes by that we can't choose to prepare ourselves for the king like Esther did. And we as the church, his bride, can approach him at any time. The third time that Esther approached the king was when she risked her life by going to the king on her own accord to invite him to the first banquet, which leads us into our next point. Number two, Esther had an opportunity. Now, her opportunity arose out of position in the arose, arose out of opposition in the palace. King Xerxes was overcome with pride when he wanted Queen Vashti's beauty to be seen. 
Queen Vashti refused the king's demand, which then led to Queen Vashti's demotion and banishment, which then led to Esther's election and elevation, and Esther gained influence with those she came into contact with, and she was treated kindly because of it. So we have some opposition that takes place in the palace, but because of the opposition, Esther's opportunity rose. These were stepping stones on which Esther had risen to her opportunity. This is what we would call the providence of God, which is displayed biblically in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We all know the verse. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. We could define providence as God for us, or in other words, God for those who love him, which is us, the people of God, the church. And through God's providence, God accomplishes his will. God caused everything to work together for the purpose of Esther, a Jewish woman who was called according to his purpose for her. And through Esther, God accomplished his will of saving the Jews from mass genocide. But it started with her opportunity. She had an opportunity to become queen, and then she had the opportunity to approach the king in order to save her people despite risking her life. We return to Mordecai's words, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And she took that opportunity and ended up saving a whole race of people. Well, we're not great queens like Esther. <laughs> we are what we are. Teacher, plumber, mom, dad, electrician, doctor, realtor, friend, mentor, neighbor, etc. fill in the blank, whatever you do, whatever is your thing, you know, whatever you devote the most time to, we are what we are, and we do what God has made us to do. We have our own circle of circumstances and people around us, and out of this circle, our own set of opportunities continually arise. Our opportunities may not be as far-reaching or as high-sounding as others, but they are opportunities nonetheless. Our opportunities may be life or death to others, even though it may not initially seem like it. They may be salvation or condemnation to souls. And is that not opportunity enough? To know that whatever God has designed you to do, the people that surround you have been entrusted to you, just like Esther found herself holding the fate of her people in her hands. And she had the opportunity to either speak up or sit down. We are all tempted to say, if only I was Esther, <laughs> if only I had a great opportunity like she did, I would rise to the occasion by faith. I would speak up regardless of the risk. I would speak up, deliver Israel, and glorify God. But here's the thing. You and I, we were not born in Jerusalem to eventually be under the Persian king Xerxes in exile between 486 and 465 B.C., that's not us. We're not there. We're here right now. According to God's providence and his judgment on who he created us to be as individual people, we are in the best place for us in all of the world, in the time period that is best suited to how God designed us. So we can take every opportunity by faith to speak up to the circle of circumstances and people that surround us. All of God's best wisdom and his greatest love have been laid out in surrounding us with our circle of people and in the opportunities that we receive out of our surroundings. And we are tempted, as people, 
to pay him back with complaints of how we wish we were somewhere else or doing something else, or we pay him back with the neglect of opportunities that he does give us wherever we're at in the midst of whatever we're doing, and as a result, he may lose the souls of all who have anything to do with us. We must come to a place where we recognize that our most commonplace our most uninteresting, our most everyday circle of people and circumstances, we must come to a place where we recognize that they shine if we will choose to see them rightly. The first class that I get to teach in the morning alongside Jason Ross is 7th and 8th grade Bible. Uh, They're practically falling asleep while sitting in their desk. Uh, As soon as we open the Word of God, it's like, and they they start to fall, especially if they have a hood on, so we have to make them take their hood off, because if they have their hood on, they're warm, and they just, they drift, okay? Uh, But I walk into that classroom, and I have to tell myself, this is an opportunity that could be life or death for one of these students. So I try to be funny. I'm not as funny as Jason, but I try to be funny. I try to be interesting. I try to make the Bible seem fascinating for a junior high kid, because I want to choose to see my everyday circle of people and circumstances rightly. Every day is an opportunity. Every conversation is an opportunity. Everything that I do every day, it is an opportunity between life or death, the heart of someone and their soul. When I was in college, an opportunity looked a little bit different. Uh, It looked like studying for a test with some people in my classes that I could have the chance to tell them about Jesus. You know, yeah, let's study for a test. And, you know, we get into hour three. It's really late at night. And then we start talking about the deeper things in life and the meaning of life. And eventually, somewhere, I'm going to be able to talk about Jesus in here. So we kind of, you know, put that into the conversation a little bit. And so as our seasons of life change, our opportunities change. And we must be aware of that. We must recognize who is around us. Who do I see every day? Who do I work with? Who am I continually conversating with, right? Who am I talking to? And what opportunities lay ahead of me every day? Church, we must recognize that the the opportunities the Lord presents us with every day, each conversation, every decision, it matters and it could have an eternal impact. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is always at hand. The kingdom is at hand. And we must, by faith, take every opportunity. Because Esther recognized the opportunity and took the opportunity, despite the risk of potentially losing her life, uh, because she entered the throne room of the king, he heard her out, and millions of people in 127 different provinces from India to Ethiopia were saved. Because the only uh, biblical context that we have about Esther is contained in the book of Esther. Let's talk about the book of Esther for just a moment. In the book of Esther, number three, number three, in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. His name is not mentioned. It doesn't even show up once. But the beautiful thing is that you can't miss him in the story. This story shows God's protection of the Jews even while they were in exile for their sins, and it shows the courageous faith of Esther in the God of Israel as she reveals her Jewish nationality to the king. And God's will is brought to, the, to fruition in the story, and there's a complete reversal of the decree that set out to kill the Jews. Esther had no burning bush. She had no gentle whisper. She had no Damascus Road experience. She just had faith. And she trusted in the providence of God as she prepared to approach the king. As she hid her nationality, as she approached the king without being summoned, and as she revealed her nationality to face the risk of death. He is Emmanuel, God with us, when we can't see him, 
when we can't feel him, when we don't know what he's up to in our lives. It's in these moments when God seems far away, when it seems like he's not in the story, that we must choose to live by faith like Esther did. I look back on my own life and I see how God was moving when I didn't even know it. It was almost 10 years ago to the day that I preached for the first time as a seventh grader. (laughs) I gave an eight-minute message about how God's words over our lives are more important than anyone else's words over our lives, not knowing that God would call me uh, to share the gospel for the rest of my life in a very similar way. (laughs) It was almost five years ago to the day, so April, all this stuff happened in April, uh, that I spoke in CM Youth uh, in the student center for the first time as a senior, or for the second time as a senior in high school. This is my second time, like, speaking about the Lord in a public setting. Uh, Not knowing that God would call me here to stay. I didn't know what God was up to, but he did. In church, if you think hard and long enough, you can look back over your life and you can think and remember the times that God was moving and his hand was protecting and guiding your life and you didn't even know it. And God is all over the story of Esther even though his name is never mentioned. And anytime we question what God is up to, anytime I question what God is up to, or if he's up to anything, I look back and I remember how he was moving when I didn't even know it, which confirms in me and it assures me that he's up to something now and I must choose to continue living by faith. Esther 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, tells us what happens on the day that the two decrees are put into effect. So again, we have this one decree and this reversal decree that Mordecai and Esther send out. It says, on that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. Still no mention in the name of God, but we know how the Jews overpowered their enemies. It was the God of Israel at work through the faith of Esther and the willingness of his people. Wrapping up, looking again at our Hebrews 11 passage, we can see how Esther escaped death by faith and brought justice to her people by risking her own life. We see how she prepared to approach the king, how she had an opportunity and took it by faith, and we see how the hand of God is evident even through, even though Esther's story never mentions his name. Church, will you stand and pray with me? Lord, we love you and we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that we can approach you, that we can come before you. And God, that we get to share in your inheritance as your children. God, we thank you that you put opportunities before us every day to speak to people, to speak life into people where there is death, to speak life into our workplace where there is death, Lord. And God, we ask that you would use us as willing vessels, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, that we can speak to to your people who you created and who you love, so that way, God, their hearts can be reconciled to know you again. God, we thank you that even when we don't think you're up to anything, that you're always up to something. And so we thank you, Lord, that your hand guides us and leads us and protects us and provides for us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, God, that you reign in this place. 
We give you our lives, Lord. We lay it all down on the altar. We praise your name. We love you, God, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.